We are going to uh, be looking at that passage tonight, so if you can keep that open, uh, that'd be really helpful. And we're going to uh, figure out what Paul is on about as we continue our series uh, in Philippians uh, tonight. So it'd be great if you can keep that open. Uh, As we do that, I'll just do this. Can I remind you that we're going to have a question and answer time at the end? Uh, So if something's not clear on the way through, I would love to have your questions at the end. So don't hold back. Uh, Jot them down maybe as we go through. Well, let me start with a little uh, revelation uh, about Caro. Caro's just doing the reading there. That's my wife. Uh, Caro plays the piano. And before she comes and plays up here, she plays this one here. And uh, just recently, a little bit of sadness came into our house uh, because our piano developed a problem. Our piano developed a problem. One of the keys had stopped working. Now, I don't know about you. This is Father's Day after all. But I don't know about you, but men, if I can say to you, but maybe ladies as well. Uh, What do you do when you have a highly technical problem in your house? What do you do? Well, I think the natural first thing, this is how I'm wired up. The natural first thing that I do is I go to YouTube. And so I decide it is possible to fix anything. All I need to do is find the right YouTube video. So if the key isn't working on the piano, what do I need to do? And this video lays out very carefully in about 3 minutes and 22 seconds that I need to disassemble the piano, pull the keys out in a very particular way, and then if I just get that spring right by pushing on the little then I'll be able to fix the keys. No problems. Of course I'm a certified piano fixer. Does anyone else have this same gung-ho-ness? It's all solved by YouTube. Oh, I see that hand. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, now, wonderfully, it's worth me sharing with you. Testosterone. Well, I think my wife is aware of this because she has said, no, we're actually going to get a proper piano fixer to fix the piano. Boo. But uh, I guess the question uh, for you tonight is, how DIY confident are you? How DIY? Do it yourself. That's what the DIY stands for. Are you confident about doing it yourself? Do have, show of hands. Who, who's DIY confident? Oh, yeah, I can see both of you. Yes, yes, yes. Well, funnily enough, the three gentlemen at the back who just put their hands up, I'm going to trust my things too, because I reckon you guys would do a brilliant job uh, at fixing stuff up. Caro, I can understand why you didn't ask me to have a go with the YouTube video. But um, how DIY confident are you? I think some of us are wired up to think, I can do it. And some of us are wired up to go, I just need to call the piano fixer. Is that right? Okay, pay some money and get the expert on the job. I guess I want to ask tonight, and this will be the focus of my talk, how confident are you about meeting God? How confident are you about meeting God? And and I want to suggest tonight that there are potentially three options for how confident you could feel about meeting with God. So I I want you to uh, meet Saul and Martin and Trevor, give you these, uh, these three guys. So there's one guy, a guy called Saul, who is super confident, he's very confident about meeting God. And so he would probably say, I am right. God, if I was to meet you, he was going to say, God, I'm right. You are lucky to have me on your team. Okay, I'm right. I'm in right standing before you, God. I'm, I'm totally confident. Another guy, a guy called Martin. Martin is terrified about meeting God. He would say, I have no right to be before you, God. You're holy and awesome And I'm terrified. I have no right to stand before you. The complete opposite of Saul. And then we've got a guy called Trevor. Uh, Trevor's a little bit apathetic about meeting God. So Tony, we'll call him 
Trevor, Tony. I'll let you in a little secret. Uh, both Saul and Martin are real people. I made Tony up. So we'll call him Tony and not Trevor. Um, so Tony, Tony's apathetic. That's how apathetic he is. I don't even know what his name is. Uh, he's totally apathetic. Uh, when it comes to meeting God, his response is, she'll be right. I don't know. We'll probably be all right. God must like me, I guess. Uh, I think this is a pretty typical kind of Australian thought process, whether it's Tony uh, or some other name, Trevor, perhaps. Uh, the reality is I think a whole lot of Australians don't think too much about this. But if they did, they would think, she'll be right. It'll be okay. I, I want to suggest to you tonight that Tony's answer isn't helpful. Martin's answer isn't helpful, and Saul's answer because of why he gives the answer, isn't helpful either. We're going to have a look at the passage uh, tonight, and we're going to break it up into pe- uh, pieces to help us understand it a little bit better. But I wanted to start with something that's just a bit fun. Uh, I'm a big fan of space, all things space, and there's an organisation called SpaceX. Has anyone heard of them? Uh, they're Elon Musk's company, and basically they've invented a whole bunch of rocket ships that are launching satellites into the world at the moment, and they are landing rocket ships. Have you seen this? The rocket goes up into space and then lands on its end so it can be reused. None of you know this. Go and Google it. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, they have a space capsule that they've just made. And in this space capsule, it has very limited buttons. Okay? Uh, it's just got uh, these little buttons here. And I just absolutely love these buttons. I think they're fantastic. You're in a spaceship. And if you want to get down to Earth, you press the button. Can you see the middle, middle button there? Deorbit now. I mean, that's pretty good. It's like cruise control on the car, isn't it? It's very, very simple. Deorbit now, and then you have to press the big button at the top, which says, execute command. And guess what happens? Things will start shuddering and shaking, and you will drop out of orbit in a fiery crescendo. Parachutes will open, and you will land softly on the ground, all things being equal. But I love this command. It's a simple command, deorbit now, but it has huge implications. Paul gives the people in Philippi, far away from space travel, two commands to open this section. Have a look with me at verses 3, 1 to 2. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul's first command is to rejoice. Take joy in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord is what he says. Then he says... Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And everyone goes, eh? What happened to my beautiful, joyous, happy book of Philippians? If you've been following along this series, we've seen Paul writing to the church in a way that is warm and engaging and encouraging. And rejoice in the, in the Lord sounds like the rest of the letter. How did we get to watch out for those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh? It seems like a bit of a bad gear change kind of moment. What's happening is Paul is looking. He started a little church in Philippi, and he's looking at the little church he started here, and he's thinking about a church he started there, and another one he started here, and another one he started over there. And he's seen a pattern. And the pattern that he's seen is what will happen is some people will come and start teaching you something different. And so Paul's pattern watching leads to a loving warning. You need to watch out for these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And you're like, okay, dogs are going to come to the church. What's, what's, what's going on? What is the danger uh, that he's warning about? 
Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about circumcision. This is a good moment this morning, can I just say, and I'm enjoying doing it again. Who really wants, did you notice this word was in the, uh, was in the reading tonight? And everyone kind of goes, yeah, that's a bit icky. Why, why are we talking about that? So I want to just go put it all front and center and say, let's talk about circumcision. So what is circumcision? Uh, it's cutting off the excess flesh at the end of your penis. It is not cutting off your penis. It's cutting off a little bit of skin at the end of the male's penis. And we're just going, wow, wow. Are we really talking about this tonight? I'll tell you why. Look, literally, if we don't understand this, this passage and the warning and everything that Paul says from now is utterly incomprehensible. Okay? I know that's strange, okay? And no one wants to talk about it, but there we go. I've gone there tonight, hence the face that you can see on the screen. What I want to show you is why we do that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 17, verses uh, 9 to 12. I think I remember from this morning, it's on page 15. So Genesis 17. Uh, verses 9 to 12, and I can hear you writing down your questions for later. Is that right? Very good. Fantastic. Question one, why did you go there? Genesis 17 uh, and verses 9 to 12. We're in the Old Testament right at the start with a man called Abraham, and we're seeing God speak to him and start off the whole journey that will become the people of Israel. In verse 9, he says, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant or my promise. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. All right. So what's going on? The sign of God's promise to bless the world through Abraham is circumcision. If you want to be part of the nation of Israel as a male, you ought to be circumcised. On what day? Everyone was listening. What day was it? On the eighth day, you ought to be circumcised. It's the sign of the covenant. So it's a physical way to show that you're part of God's promise and God's plan for the whole world. It's the way you show you're one of God's precious children if you're a man. Okay? Here's a surprising thing. Have a look with me. We just look up on the screen. In Luke 2.21, we see that this happened even to Jesus. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So Jesus, as a good Jew, is circumcised. Yes, Jesus received it, but you can imagine it was a huge barrier to pagan inclusion. So imagine you're a pagan, right, living in Philippi. Okay? And you wanted to become a Jew. Here are the Jews. And they say, if you want to be part of God's plan for the whole world, come and get rid of all your gods. That's going to be hard. But then what we want you to do, everyone who's a male, you will need to be circumcised. It's a huge barrier. For the Jews, they sort of seen it as in the way that Paul described it here, as mutilating the flesh. They said, we don't want you to touch our beautiful bodies. Leave us alone. And the Jews said, if you want to get with God's program, you better get circumcised. Paul goes on and explains why this is such a big deal, but I, I wanted to give you a quick picture of my dad. This is my mum and my dad. My dad is wearing his medals. Uh, his medals are to do with his time uh, doing national service uh, just before the Vietnam War. And th they are, when he wears them on Anzac Day, 
a source of honour and pride. And they tell other people something about him that he is able to give thanks for and that he's proud of. Paul goes to the metal sense in this passage here and he tells you what he used to be proud of. Have a look with me at verses uh, 4 to 6 in Philippians uh, chapter 3. So chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He says, uh, who put no confidence in in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, if you want to get in, if we want to start talking about physical things that make you pleasing to God, Paul says, I'm the man. He says, I've got the born on the eighth day medal. I've got the tribe of Benjamin medal. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the first king of Israel, Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. It may actually be why he's called Saul. Anyway, he's a, he's a, a Benjamite. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Which means he's as good as all the rest of the Jews. As when it comes to the law, he's a Pharisee. He's a persecutor of the church. Big words, what does it mean? It means that Paul was so passionate about being a Jew that when he looked at the Christians, he said, you guys are getting this wrong. I'm going to put you in jail. And in fact, he approved of people killing Christians. That was his past. He said, I'm wearing, I used to wear that as a badge of honor. I am persecuting the church. Legally faultless when I stand before God. So when it comes to the law, he says, I can stand before God and say, God, check me out. I obey all the laws. What did it mean for Paul? In summation, the net result was pride, wasn't it? Can't you just hear it dripping off him? If he was to say, I'm faultless, I've never committed any sin. I'm, I'm legally uh, faultless. He'd say, well, Paul, there's this thing called pride. Have you heard of that? I think you might have just stuffed up. But in his past, Paul was proud, wore these medals on his chest, not physical medals, obviously, guys, but wore these things and said, basically, I am better than everyone else. But something happened on the road to Damascus. The man called Saul met Jesus and his values changed. The things that he used to think were badges of honour suddenly became something else in his hands. Have a look at this picture here for me. Uh, Tell me, what is this lady doing? Has anyone got any ideas? What's in the bag? Has anyone got any ideas? Dog poo. Fantastic. Does she look excited about this? No, no, no. Uh, I remember remember seeing a Seinfeld episode once where he was saying, uh, when aliens come, They look down from their alien ships, they look down and they see the dogs and they decide the dogs are the kings of the world because the humans walk around with little bags picking up their stuff after them. So here's a lady and and she's got this terrible look on her face. Why do I tell you this? I I want you to read with me verses 7 to 9 and then I'm going to tell you something pretty amazing. Paul says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, it's, it's absolutely intriguing the word that gets translated here is garbage. I was doing some work 
uh, looking in here. The word that's translated as garbage, every single translation of the Bible mistranslates to help us not be offended in church. This word only occurs in this passage. And what Paul is saying is my previous life, everything I counted as a badge of honor on my chest is actually a bag of what? Don't say it. It's not doo-doo. He's using a swear word here, the word. He's saying, I consider them. He is, <laughs> great, great moment, great teaching moment right there. He's saying, I, can, I consider them that. And it's supposed to have all of us, I won't even say it in church, right? But it's here in the letter, and I reckon it's there to make all of us just go, what? What did you just say? Everything that was awesome about making you amazingly better than everyone else, he's saying, is a bag of, it's all loss, Paul says. It's loss because it gave me false confidence. It's rubbish because I thought I was in right standing before God and I wasn't. He says, it's a bag of, because it hardened my heart to Jesus. Where I thought I was so good, what it was doing was hardening me to the only one who can save me. And he says, it's all loss because it's nothing next to knowing Jesus. See, Paul says, I used to be on this treadmill of righteousness. And what I found is someone I can relate to. Whereas God was holy and awesome and far away, now I have a saviour I can relate to. In the end, Paul's previous way of life was lonely striving. And now he's changed it up for knowing Christ. For knowing Christ. If it didn't have the, if it didn't have the stickers on it, could you pick the real one and the fake one? The real one and the fake one? Does anyone know how to pick a real Rolex from a fake Rolex? Oh, yes, Rylan. Do you really? Tell us. How do you pick? It's a good thought. Just pick any one. Right, okay. One of them will be worth several thousand dollars, tens of thousand dollars in, in some cases, and one of them will be worth almost nothing. Here's how you pick. A Rolex has a smooth movement. Doesn't do. Has a smooth movement. Okay, that's good. That's a good thing for you to know. Uh, but here's the thing. It's very hard if you don't know what you're looking at and you'll often get sold the wrong thing. Paul is looking to the church and he's saying, don't get sold on the wrong thing. I want to show you the real deal. And so we come back to chapter 3 and he says, we are the real deal. Chapter 3, verse 3. After, after he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, he says, verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. It's really interesting to see. Paul says it was never just about a physical act. And I want to show you three places where we can see it is not just about a physical act. So have a look with me. We're in the Old Testament here in the book of Deuteronomy, which is, you can see up the top there, after they've wandered in the desert, just before they get into the promised land. And God said to them in Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Let you in a little secret. No open heart surgery 3,000 years ago. Yeah? There was no way to circumcise your heart. He, he could never have meant K 
cut anything on your heart. What he was saying is set your heart apart for God. Circumcise your heart. We, we then see a little bit later on in Jeremiah, in the time just before the exile, God again, impassionately speaking to his people, says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire. What's he saying? God was always looking for hearts, not surgery. God was always looking for hearts, not surgery. The mark of the covenant was a physical way to say my heart is devoted to God. It was never that just if you mark your body, you were devoted to God. And so God says again and again, I want your hearts. Hearts, not surgery. Not an operation, but an attitude of devotion is what God was looking for. Let me show you that in the New Testament, in Romans, Paul is going, going hard against the same problem here. And I think you'll get how this makes sense. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Do you see what he's saying here? Now you are the circumcision by the blood of Jesus. Now, I said to the 10 a.m. guys, you are the circumcision. There's a name you've never been called before, isn't it? Okay, and hopefully will never be called again. But, but the idea is, right, the idea is to say, you are the devoted people. If your hearts are turned to the living God, then for all intents and purposes, Greetings, you are the circumcision. It's an amazing title, really. Uh, how do we get access to this wonderful, this wonderful devotion to God? How is it made possible? Have a look with me at verse 9, which is absolutely amazing. He says, I consider them garbage, you remember that bag, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, what is faith? How do I get right standing before God? I get right standing by, before God by faith. And what's faith? Is it blind faith? I close my eyes and go, God, do something to me. No, that, that's not faith. That's blind faith. What we are talking about is trusting in someone trustworthy. I, I love this picture. What do, you need to be, what do you need to be doing to be saved in this, in this picture here? Don't worry, I've got it. I'll swim back to shore. I'm under control. It's not going to work, is it? What do you need to do to be saved? You put your hand in the hand of the rescuer who will save you completely. That's faith. You have to trust that the man who's in the funny goggles and the hat is a good man. You have to trust that the helicopter will stay in the air. You have to trust that it's got enough fuel. You have to do some trusting, but it's trusting in someone trustworthy, isn't it? And who's going to turn the helicopter away? Don't worry, I've got this DIY salvation. I've got it. I'm going to swim to shore. It's not like that, is it? We'd never do that. So what's the sort of faith that Paul's talking about here? Putting our hands in the trustworthy hand of our Savior. That's saving faith. And it's faith alone. It's only by trusting in God that we are saved. And when we save, then we're the people who are serving in the Spirit, We're the people who are boasting in Jesus and we're the people who are not trusting in works or looking to our flesh. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can be forgiven. Praise God. So this is an outside righteousness. 
It's a righteousness that comes from God to us. It's not something that we do or earn. He gives it to us. And so I guess I want to ask, does your view of your right standing come from God alone? In other words, if you were to say, God, God would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? Would your answer start with, well, I... Ah, very good. Thank you, Darren. A little bit subversive at this point, but good, good, helpful, uh, helpful input. So, so when we say, when we say, when we say, but I, generally, Darren's answer is excellent. Generally, we say, generally, we would say, I'm turning to something I've done. Well, I have come to church on Father's Day, God. You've got to honor that, don't you? That's a pretty good work. Or, hey, hey God, but I am giving money to the church and I'm not letting anyone know about it. I'm just contributing on my own. But I give my seat up on public transport for ladies and old people. That's pretty good. God, you should let me into heaven because I always pay my taxes and I actually tell the government how much money I I earn. I'm pretty good. And all those things are good and keep doing them, please. But I'll never make you right before God because the problem is with our hearts. And so I want to ask you, does your view of your right standing come from God alone, his declaration of making you right because you're trusting in Jesus? Or do you look to yourself and say, I have done. Those who trust in Jesus are called to be like their master, their master Jesus. So here's a master and an apprentice. And in Philippians 3, 10 to 11, we see what our master is like. And you see Paul's passion. Have a look at it here. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I'm so on board with Jesus. I want to know Jesus's life. He says, I want to know the power of Jesus. Who doesn't want to know the power of Jesus? I want that power in my life. Then he says, I want to be so in line with Jesus that I want to know the sufferings of Jesus. And everyone goes, oh, that's a bit awkies. Who really wants that? I want to know his power. But here he's saying, I want to be so in line with Jesus. I want to share in his suffering that I may also, that I almost share in his resurrection. I want my life so bound up with the story of Jesus that suffering, power and resurrection are known to me. And so I guess I want to ask you, does the Jesus you follow suffer? Or have we just just X'd out that part of the Jesus story? We follow a crucified saviour and we want to believe at times that there'll be no hardship for those who follow him. Does your Jesus suffer? And if he does, are you willing to join him? Are you willing to join him? Have a look at this room here. Uh, Does it surprise you at all? Do you know what this room is called? It's called a trophy room. If you're a particularly weird and offensive human, and you've killed lots of very valuable animals, not only do you do that in your own time, you cut off their heads, you stuff them, and you mount them in your room. Uh, That's pretty uh, impressive, I guess. What this guy is saying is, if you come and have a cup of tea with me and I bring you into this room, you will note how impressive I am. Look at what I've done in the past. Judge me today as a greater man because of the stuffed heads on the wall around me. Paul says this in 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
true faith will forget the past and press on to the goal. Forget the past and press on to the goal. I want to speak to Christians who are here for tonight. And I want to ask you, I want to ask you, do you recognize the danger of resting on your laurels? What I mean by that is, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you might be able to look back and say, hey, I served in Beach Mission. I'm on the kids' roster at New Life, and I've been doing that, Paul, for five years, right? We have the potential to look back and say, actually, God, I know I was saved by faith, but now I've been following you for a while. I want you to know I've done so much good stuff. Surely you'll accept me. And so we have a temptation, I think, to start resting on our laurels, to look at bolstering our reasons for being appealing to God, which is our own achievements. And I want to encourage you tonight, don't rest on your laurels. Keep looking to Jesus. Let's revisit our three friends as we bring this to an end. Saul is, of course, the man that we came to know as Paul. He was incredibly confident until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had his fake confidence destroyed And in its place, faith confidence was deployed, a new confidence. And I want to say to you, like Paul, will you turn from trying to be good enough to the one who's done it all? So stop trying to do it all and look to to God and say, God, you have done it all for me. I want to trust like Paul. What about Martin? Well, Martin was actually Martin Luther. And he was terrified of God. He, He became a monk after he was almost struck by lightning, he said, God, you have my life. And as a monk, he devoted himself to trying to please God, the God who was holy and mighty and awesome. He would flagellate himself. He would deny food. He would sleep in the middle of winter without blankets in order to try and earn favor before God. And he was terrified that he might meet God until one day in the scripture, he figured out he could be saved by faith alone. Faith alone was the way that he would find right standing. And so for Martin Luther... Right terror was tamed. God is still awesome and holy. What he found out is a faith that was founded on God making him righteous. Will you turn from fear to faith and find a quiet confidence in Jesus? Those of you who are terrified tonight can know that you can be forgiven completely because of Jesus. What about Tony, who's apathetic? Well, I hope tonight, if you've been ignorant, that the apathy is destroyed. I want you to at least think again about meeting God. And I hope that you'll find a faith that is informed and that you'll embrace the Savior that I've laid out for you tonight. I guess I want, to, I want you to think, will you consider meeting your maker and find out more about Jesus? Find out more about Jesus and find him to be trustworthy. You see, salvation in the end, salvation in the end is not a DYI job. It's not a DYI job. Salvation in the end is by faith in Jesus. Where do I get my right standing before God? Righteousness is not DIY. Righteousness, right standing before God is by faith in Jesus alone. Are you ready to meet God with confidence? The answer you give reveals all the difference in the world. Why are you confident? If you're looking to Jesus, you have a great answer. If you're looking to yourself, You need to look again. Here's the way uh, Paul speaks to the Galatians in chapter 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And we all say, Amen. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to know that what you are looking for is circumcised hearts, hearts that are devoted to you, 
trusting in Jesus by faith and finding our right standing in and through and because of what he has done. Father, forgive us where we turn to ourselves. Forgive us who've been Christians for ages when we trust that because of the good things we've done, you will accept us. Help us to find again the wonderful truth and the deep confidence of salvation by faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <laughs> I'm going to dare to have question time. How does that sound? Let's see. What have we got? Have we got any questions tonight uh, from the floor? Oh, do you want to take the mic? Do we have any questions? Oh, Callum's got one over here. If it's, uh, if it's about um, anatomy, I probably can't help you. Go, Callum. What do you got for me? Mate? Use the mic if you can. That way we can hear your question. Okay. Um, why did Jesus um, choose to be circumcised as a way to um, show that, he, that you were a part of God's family? Why did he choose that instead of all the others? It's a brilliant question. Uh, the same question could be asked as to why did Jesus undergo baptism as well? Yeah? And the answer to that, Callum, is Jesus decided because he was fully God and fully man. Do you remember that the other day? Fully God and fully man. He was to be a faithful Israelite in every way that the people around him were and never, ever sin. And so all Jewish men were circumcised. And in order to be exactly like a regular Jewish man, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Mind you, just so we're clear, how much say did Jesus have in that? Not very much. So in the end, it was because his parents decided to circumcise him. But in the biggest sense, why was Jesus circumcised? To make himself be absolutely identifiable with the people that he would save. Just like them, in order that they might know that they were fully saved by him. Great question, though, Carl. It's an excellent question. Yeah, next question. How do you spell circumcision? <laughs> Has someone else got another question for us? Yeah, Ali. Um, if you can use the mic, that's helpful. Oh, Thanks. Who did the circumcision? Like, was there any way you could dodge it? Like, how would you check? Like, what do you... Uh, well, like? very interesting. Uh, so that's a great question. Um, how would you check? Uh, well, you can imagine how you'd check. But uh, who did it? Um, it, may, it may well have been uh, a priest um, in the area. You, you going to add something there? All the... Oh, I'm going to bow to your superior wisdom here. If you can use the mic, mate, and tell us about it, that'd be great. The guy who does the circumcision is called a Brit Moller. I used to work with a guy who was a Brit Moller. He was also the president at his synagogue. He wasn't the rabbi, but he was uh, president on a rotating basis. So Amazing. That's uh, great information. Oh, the it's a wonderful little operation. <laughs> <laughs> and no, they've got it down to a T. He showed me all his... Uh, Toolkit, if you like, and uh, yeah, stunning. Uh, about three seconds flat, done. Okay, thank you. Uh, that is wonderful uh, information, isn't it? Um, uh, here's the other thing. This, this is something that is really important, and it's more information than you need. But I, I just want to check this out. Um, one of the reasons it became such a big issue for the Gentile Christians was if you were in a Roman town, most of the business and the interaction with people was also done in the Roman baths. If you've had such an operation, it's immediately evident there that you have had the operation. And so it actually has huge social implications for you if you, if you undergo circumcision. It was impossible to hide, and the Romans were very non-prudish 
about being naked together. That's just one of the things that they did. And so it would have been a huge deal if you were a pagan Gentile to then get circumcised. Everyone would have known that you'd done it. And so you can understand for some of them, they decide, I really don't need that to be the first thing that everyone knows about me. And so I'm not going to do it. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Another question? Yeah, Tim. Um, Paul talks about, I want to know Christ. Yes. And the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, etc. Can you define knowing Christ, please? Uh, that's so helpful, mate. Uh, can I define knowing Christ? Uh, I think tonight I didn't do adequate justice to that, so I'm very thankful for the question. Jesus is alive today. He's not a subject to be mastered. He's a someone to meet. He can be known in person, experientially. You can talk to him. You can hear from him. You generally hear from him in your word, but there'll be times when he can speak to you. Um, he is the one who will be present with you personally by his Holy Spirit. Experientially, I can feel and know the presence of the living Jesus. Uh, so there is a sense in which if we don't make that clear, what Paul was saying is, I'm not just trying to know more. I'm not just trying to fill my head with knowledge. There's a real, genuine Jesus who is able to be known. And he says, I have a passion to know him more. And so when he says, I'm forgetting what is behind and I'm striving towards what's ahead, he's saying, I am looking forward to the day when I will see my Savior face to face. And in the meantime, he is more knowable every day that I seek him. So, Brothers and sisters gathered here tonight, I want to encourage you, you can know Jesus. You can speak with him. You can come to know and love him and experience his presence with you. Jeff. 